So the next talk will be by Professor Ben Kaplan. He's, uh, he's a professor in the History Department at University <coughs> College London at the University uh, of Amsterdam as well. He's written on recently on some on religious conflict and toleration in early modern Europe. And his talk today is entitled The Tale of Two Churches. And commenting will be Dr. Mark Sheehan of Oxford. <coughs> thank you, uh, Russell. And uh, thank you both Steve and Russell for the invitation. Um, please excuse my little bit of uh, uh, self-advertising here. And please also uh, accept my apologies in advance for my voice, which you can perhaps hear is kind of gravelly because I'm just getting over a cold. I just hope it holds out. <coughs> um, a little while earlier, uh, John Perry uh, appealed for us to get concrete and to talk about particular religions and particular situations. And of course, this is what historians do. Um, we specialize in the diversity of humanity, in a way, and in a particular dimension, its temporal dimension. And this, in and of itself, um, offers a salutary lesson, I think, to those studying issues regarding religious conflict and religious toleration, because things weren't always the way they are today, nor they have to be this way in the future. Um, nowadays, we think of toleration as being uh, embodied in various institutions, articulated in various practices, um, certainly separation of church and state central to our practice of toleration, um, equality of people of different religions before the law, uh, freedom of worship, freedom to express yourself, including the right to proselytize, which is often a sensitive issue. And um, this is something that many of us um, value highly, uh, wish to see safeguarded and promoted. But there's a little danger here, because there's a tendency to equate toleration in and of itself with the particular form in which it is practiced today in certain countries of the world and not others, of course. The practice of toleration historically has taken quite varied forms and the point is that the alternatives, just looking at the historical record, proves that the alternatives are not our modern institutions and separation of church and state on the one hand or fundamentalism, theocracy, and religious war on the other. In fact, in most of history, in most places, you've had neither one nor the other. Um, and certainly that was the case in the pre-modern history of Europe. This is the period and place that I specialize in, uh, kind of 16th through 18th centuries. And when you survey lands of Europe in those centuries, the centuries after the Reformation, after the sundering of Western Christendom into Catholic and then a variety of rival Protestant camps, what you see in the first place is a growing and by the early 17th century extremely acute enmity between these different religious groups. And there are religious wars in France, in Germany, uh, in the Low Countries, in Poland, you can arguably say here in England in the 1640s. Lots of religious war, and in fact, they tend to dominate the popular uh, image of this period. 
an age of religious war, of fanaticism, so goes the stereotype, was followed by an age of enlightenment, an age when reason replaced faith and humanity grew up a little bit. Humanity progressed more than just a little bit. The kind of standard, I'd say, popular historical schema, which so many of us carry in our minds around with us, is that toleration is good, intolerance is bad, the more, toleration, uh, the more tolerant a society is, the more progress it has achieved. If, uh, toleration, religious freedom, um, as an aspect of modernity, of modernization. And the notion somewhere out there is that societies that today are still intolerant won't be someday in future, that all societies in a way are arranged along a single track, actually, evolving. It is an evolutionary progressive historical schema in which all societies at different points along the track are moving in the same direction to the same <coughs> goal. And I don't think this is so. And I don't think there's historical evidence really to support what is fundamentally a, a belief. Now, <coughs> excuse me. In the early modern world, <coughs> you find, in addition to religious violence, and in addition to, in fact, the enlightened uh, elites who uh, certainly come to dominate the equivalent of the airways of the 18th century, you have a great mass of human beings living on this continent over several centuries who were not killing their neighbors or people down the road because they were of a different uh, religion, nor did they necessarily like these other people, or at least they certainly did not like their religious beliefs. Intolerance was hardwired into the forms of Christianity that happened to prevail in Europe in this period. I'm not saying that it's intrinsic to Christianity, to any other religion. <coughs> I think, again, the historical record shows you have tolerant, you have intolerant Christians. You know, it's as simple as, quite simple, but you find an extraordinary uh, range of behaviors. And it is, I should preface my further remarks by saying, it is behavior that I am interested in as a social historian. I'm not primarily a historian of ideas. I don't focus principally on the <clears throat> philosophies articulated by people like Locke and Pierre Bell and Voltaire and um, so many others. I'm interested in whether people who have different religious commitments living in the same community with one another did or did not live peaceably with one another. And so, for my purposes, a working definition of tolerance is peaceful coexistence of people of different faiths in the same community. I'm not saying it's the only valid definition of tolerance. By any means, there's an extraordinary variety. And in fact, a lot of misunderstanding usually comes when people are talking across purposes because one person is using one definition of tolerance and another is using a different one. You know what definition I'm using for purposes of discussion. Well, so what do you find in this early modern world? You find several different forms of toleration which are qualitatively different. It's not that one is more advanced than the other. 
It's not that one was more tolerant than the other, at least in my view. If you had to be judgmental, I would say you'd have to say there were pros and cons to, to the different forms. I'm going to talk about two. I'm not going to go into, there's, there's, there's several more than that. But I'm going to contrast two forms of toleration that were very widespread in this world um, that we're looking at in order to show you how even fundamentally and essentially different forms of toleration can be, which were equally peaceable. Okay. Now, let me begin by taking you to Holland, which is one of my uh, areas of specialism, and in particular to Amsterdam, that beacon of and symbol of tolerance practically in the world today, and to a particular museum. You can see the banner hanging in front of it there. Uh, otherwise, you might easily just pass right by it without noticing. It's a museum because it looks just like a typical canal house, a merchant's house from the 17th century, which is what it was. And if you um, look at an engraving uh, of uh, what it looked like, this is around the turn of the 19th century, it looks, it looks like every other house along the canal. And if you enter the museum, you pass through a series of, of uh, rooms which are appropriate to a prosperous and a socially aspiring merchant's house. Uh, in fact, it was a man named Jan Hartmann who had this house um, <clears throat> kind of uh, refurbished in the 1660s. This was his, his living room, his sitting room, and it's quite a um, a testimony to his social pretensions. And it's only after you go through a whole series of domestic rooms, making your way around and up the floors, that you suddenly find yourself in a church. <clears throat> and this is why this building is a museum. Um, it's nowadays called Our Lord in the Attic. It's a 19th century uh, <laughs> name for it. And uh, before that, it was simply called, uh, had the same name as the house, the heart, which was after Jan Hartmann, that merchant I was mentioning. And <coughs> this was a clandestine, or really very, very quasi-clandestine place of worship for Catholics in Amsterdam in the 17th and 18th centuries when Catholicism was illegal. You can see that um, it has seating, it's long and thin. It has two sets of galleries on two levels up above to squeeze more people in. If you look at a cross-section of the building, you can see here's the main hall floor and the two, the two galleries above. Probably could accommodate 150, about 200 um, people who, in that day, when they were not supposed to be doing what they were doing, would enter not at the, by the main door of the house, but from the alleyway of this set of stairs here. Um, it's a, a very confined space, well, a lot of Dutch houses are, and therefore they had to make, uh, to maximize use of it. So here is this um, altar, which in the age of the Baroque, Catholics of course wanted to be grand. And this is how they managed to accommodate, you know, a, but by their standards, it was a modest um, um, altarpiece. You see this little, you see the column here and the base of the column? Well, it pivots out into a pulpit. It's all very ingenious. And um, Catholics were very numerous in this officially Calvinist land. 
You see in the very darkest colors here, areas which are at 80% or more Catholic. It's not small parts of the country, and then intermediate areas as well. There were hundreds of thousands of Catholics all practicing a religion that was ostensibly illegal. It was illegal. But they worshipped in places like <coughs> the heart, places which did not look on the outside like churches. And this was not the only arrangement, the way in which religious dissenters were accommodated in Dutch society. If you go to Amsterdam today, for instance, you might visit the Portuguese synagogue, which is so grand it's visible from quite a distance. Jews fell into a different category, were able actually to publicly worship, publicly, visibly um, uh, have a presence as Jews in Dutch society. Catholics did not. Neither did Mennonites or many other native religious dissenters. Um, the Dutch Republic in the age that we're talking about was an officially Calvinist polity, but for a variety of reasons I won't go into, its church was not fully established in the legal sense. The Calvinist church was the dominant church, the only legally uh, permitted church. It received state uh, subsidies for its ministers. Its ministers served as chaplains to the armies. For every public purpose and function, it was a Calvinist society. But behind closed doors, it wasn't. According to uh, one of the fundamental laws of the Republic, individuals enjoyed freedom of conscience. They did not enjoy freedom of worship. Crucial distinction. What, however, did, did and what does freedom of conscience actually entail? This is where it gets interesting from my perspective. This is a stained glass window um, representing, in fact, freedom of conscience. And the answer is freedom to believe what you want and not to have to worship in a church that whose doctrines you don't agree with. You did not have to be a member of the Calvinist church. <clears throat> and that, in theory, is all that it entailed. But in practice, what it meant, and not just in the low countries either, was freedom to say and think not just think, but to say and do what you want behind closed doors in the privacy of your home. Now, this is more than just a home, isn't it? I mean, it was legal for Catholics to own a missal, to own a uh, painting of the Virgin Mary. It was not legal for them to have this. But what they've done is they've taken a, a limited permission and a certain principle and they've pushed the envelope. They've adapted it in order to accommodate more fully their religious needs, which certainly fundamentally included congregational worship and, above all, actually access to the sacraments of the priest, to have a church. So they take a building, which is a house. In other cases, they took barns or warehouses, and they refurbished them on the inside to function as quasi-clandestine churches. Now, 
there's a, an engraving, not very clear, but you can see in the uh, rectangles on both sides, some of the other um, <coughs> Catholic churches in Amsterdam. You can see they all look like houses. This is how things worked. There were just there were about twenty quasi-clandestine Catholic churches just in Amsterdam, and then there were quasi-clandestine churches for the other dissenters as well. So we're talking about many hundreds and hundreds of these quasi-clandestine churches across the land. Well, they weren't secrets. Everybody knew what was going on. You can't disguise 150 or 200 people entering and leaving at the same time, even in the county, right? Early modern communities, in fact, are very intimate. Everybody knows everybody else's beliefs and what everybody else is doing. They were supposed to, in fact. It was a uh, value in telling, you know, that neighborliness entailed. <clears throat> so, everybody knew, the magistrates knew, the Catholic ministers knew, the neighbors knew, everybody knew. They just turned a blind eye. This was a, a pact, an implicit, tacit contract between authorities, um, the dominant uh, conformist Calvinist population, and the religious dissenters. You confine your worship behind closed doors, don't make it too blatant, and we'll turn a blind eye. And indeed, tolerate. I mean, they talked about kind of seeing through the fingers, kind of, you know, you're purposefully obscuring your vision, but of course you do know actually what's going on. Connivance. It's toleration by connivance. And um, the fiction worked. It was an overwhelmingly uh, peaceful society from a religious perspective, one in fact which accommodated a greater variety of religious groups than any other in Europe at the time, living, as you might sense, in actually quite close quarters with one another. It was a haven that people like John Locke and so many others fled to in times of political or religious persecution. Um, so this is a model of toleration. It is an early modern model. And the quasi-clandestine church, the Dutch have a special name for it, they call it a schelker. It, it means clandestine church. Um, this is a model of toleration. It is one unlike our modern one because there is a sole official uh, church and all the others have to remain invisible. Nevertheless, it worked. It really did. Um, let me now show you a different arrangement, completely unlike this one. Unlike this one and also unlike our, our modern one again. Let me take you now to southwest of Germany, to uh, Swabia, in particular to the little town of Biberach, Beaver Creek. And uh, Biberach was a small town of maybe, oh, 6,000 back in Greenhouse, or even less. And you see at the center there the Church of St. Martin. You notice, by the way, that none, let me jump back, none of these clandestine churches have towers or bells. That was the um, symbol par excellence 
of a place of worship in early modern Europe, both visually and, and auditorially. It signaled that this was a place of worship and it invited people to come and worship there. It was precisely what was verboten in that Dutch arrangement that I was describing earlier. But in Biberach, they you know, inherited um, the old medieval um, parish church. There's only one <coughs> parish church in the center of town. And you can go and visit it today. And if you do, you'll find some curious features to it. Um, this is, for instance, standing right at the uh, boundary between the nave and the choir, looking up. And what you see, I hope, is a clock with two faces, one facing out to the nave, one facing into <coughs> the choir. Why do they have that? You might also notice that the church is decorated differently in different parts. The, the nave, now this is, of course, ornate by modern standards, it was done in the, it was, it was redecorated in the 1740s, but not by those of the day. This is the choir, which you see has, has uh, gilding and, um, you know, artificial and stucco and pilasters uh, and, you know, it's, it's uh, artificial marble. Uh, it's, it's more richly decorated. Um, the choir and the nave clearly are different. And uh, this church, the, the, the nave, is appropriate for Protestants. This is the ceiling fresco of the nave. You see in it images from the New Testament, like the adoration of the, the Magi. You see in the aisles adjacent to the nave stories from the life of Jesus healing the blind here. You certainly don't see what you do in the choir, where you find the apocalyptic lamb, uh, the evangelist, the archangel Michael, um, the various church fathers, um, and uh, figure of the church here, a personification, female personification of the church. In the center there, actually, is the Virgin Mary, I think, being crowned. She's being crowned with a hat. Anybody know? Can you tell? Well, very good. That's right. It is, in fact, the papal. Somebody wants to look like a pineapple. <laughs> um, it is indeed precise. This could not be a more Catholic image. And it tells you what and how the church, what it was and how it was used. The choir was used by the Catholics to worship in. The nave was used. The nave was used by the Protestants of the community. It was a shared church. It has been shared. It continues to be shared. It has been since uh, pretty almost continually since uh, 1548. When, for a variety of reasons, which I again won't go into, Catholics and Protestants of the community found that they were under pressure to and they had to share the use of this church. Neither group was um, able to establish complete dominance in the community and both of them wanted the parish church. I mean, it's not like they couldn't have worshipped somewhere else, but both for pragmatic and for um, yeah, emotional and symbolic reasons, they both claimed what was the, the embodiment of the, uh, the town as a religious community, the spiritual heart of the community, the parish church. And when a push came to shove, they, they shared it, actually, even though they hated one another. I mean, 
the Low Countries, in Germany. As I say, I mean, intolerance was an intrinsic part of Christian, what we call <coughs> confessional piety in the era I'm talking about. I mean, not to be intolerant meant that you were a lukewarm and unsufficiently committed um, adherent of your own faith. It was demanded that you be intolerant. And religions were defined in opposition to one another. And yet, Protestants and Catholics shared the use of this church. They did so, you know, every Sunday, on festivals. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, they literally rubbed shoulders with one another when they were entering and leaving because, you know, the Catholics would have used the church from, or don't quote me on these, these times, I can't remember the precise schema, but like they did mass from five to six, Protestants had use of it from six to eight, and the Catholics from eight to ten, and back and forth it went over the course of the Sunday. Lots of coming and going. And this arrangement was accompanied by tension and there were incidents of harassment. There were times when, for instance, uh, oh, somebody blew their nose into the uh, uh, Catholic uh, uh, baptismal fount. And I mean, they found all kinds of ingenious ways to, you know, to, to, to bother one another, you know, just marching around, stamping their feet, um, thinking, you know. Um, they harassed one another almost continually, but they never, ever killed one another. There wasn't any serious violence in Ibarak between the Protestants and Catholics over several centuries, with the exception of the religious wars, when actually it was the, um, the um, soldiers, the military, not the civilians committing the violence. I would argue that the harassment the petty squabbling that occurred continuously served a purpose. That it offered a vent for the hostilities, the antagonisms that were intrinsic to their faiths and that they were obliged to articulate and express. The very fact that they are squabbling and don't have daggers drawn meant actually that they were being tolerant of one another and serious violence, iconoclastic or, you know, human, was being avoided. Um, so, this little town, Biberach, Protestants and Catholics, I should be more specific, Lutherans and Catholics. Every citizen and inhabitant of Biberach had to be either a Lutheran or a Catholic. There was no freedom of conscience. None. You had to belong to one or the other. If you deviated from the orthodoxy of yours, you would be criminally prosecuted. But those two groups held group rights, and those rights were equal to one another's. Lutherans and Catholics, unlike again in the Republic, were legally equal to one another. But they held rights as groups, not as individuals. Now, what I've been describing is not just a contrast between forms of accommodation for dissenting worship. 
It also branches, it extends out to the ways in which the patterns in which these groups interacted with one another. I mean, here's Holland, the province of Holland, where there's a single official religion and all the others have to be invisible. Well, that actually meant that religious differences were not articulated in the public sphere. And as a result, there was, again, the thinnest of pretenses, this fiction that everybody was a Calvinist, everybody knew this wasn't the case. But the society operated as if that were. And it encouraged people of different faiths to interact and mix freely with one another. I mean, um, the Calvinist church, well, it had the old parish churches for its own use, which you can see actually some of them are rather empty. Um, so many dissenters were there, so complicated and fluid was the religious scene. Famous painting by Rembrandt. And can you tell what religion these people are? I don't think so. I couldn't, certainly. Um, but we know that this man was a, a Calvinist, and um, this man, and uh, this man was, were Catholic, and in fact, at least one of them had a Schalkerk in his home. Uh, this man was a rather strict Mennonite, and that guy was a remonstrant. They belong to the same group. They dress the same way. They share a common culture. And this fiction that I was talking about before facilitated that fluidity. People of different religions intermarried with, regular, with relative frequency, as well as worked together and played together and lived together in the same neighborhoods. This is not how it worked in Biberach. Um, this is a clause from the famous Treaty of Westphalia, 1648. And here you see some of the <clears throat> a special clause related to Biberach and a few other cities. Implementing an arrangement known as parity. Lutherans and Catholics, as I said, um, coexisted with equal rights, legal recognition, and equal share of public funds public offices, everything was divvied up precisely 50-50. And it didn't matter whether there were, you know, two Calvin, uh, Catholic, sorry, Catholics for every Lutheran, or vice versa. Everything was shared, offices, power, and public money, precisely 50-50. Um, the system worked quite well when uh, there were matters that only touched upon the interests and needs of one of the religious groups their magistrates, the magistrates of that religion, would, would caucus separately. In the big city council, where you had you know, the Catholic caucus, the Lutheran caucus, each caucus had one vote. Again, group rights, not individual rights. They had to agree for anything to be adopted. Well, we don't know an awful lot about social life in Biberach. It simply hasn't been researched very well. But there's been a fair amount of research done on Augsburg, which is the biggest of the uh, South German cities that had this parity arrangement. And <clears throat> in Augsburg, we know various things. Uh, we know that there was a fair amount, an increasing amount over time, segregation between the two religious groups. They did not socialize with one another increasingly. They did not 
tend, there were some mixed guilds, but they increasingly tended to have separate guilds, separate neighborhoods. Then they started naming their children different names. A Maria was a Catholic girl, and a Friedrich was a Protestant boy. Um, different naming patterns, different clothing patterns, in the case of the women at least. I just got recently this image. You see this extraordinary bonnet that the women, these are Lutheran, this is a Lutheran communion service in Augsburg, and it's called a wing bonnet. It's like bat's wings to me. Well, Catholic women wore bolt bonnets. You could see from quite a distance whether a woman was Lutheran or Catholic. So this is completely unlike, you know, uh, Rembrandt's uh, Stallmasters, you know. Um, it's a much more segregated society where you belong to one group or the other. Movement between the two was rare and difficult. So there you have it. Schalker, shared church. Two completely different arrangements, neither of them like our modern ones. Though you could arguably say that this one was somewhat closer to our modern one. But neither of them, including the Dutch one, evolved into our modern arrangements of separation of church and state and equality before the law. That's not how things work. Both of these were stable arrangements that lasted for extended periods of time of two centuries and more. When change came, actually it came in a revolutionary fashion around the turn of the 19th century. Um, I talk about these two patterns because they aren't particular to Amsterdam or Biberach. You could find both shared and clandestine churches across many different parts of Europe. So, for instance, this is a uh, clandestine, quasi-clandestine church in London. It was in Lincoln's and Fields. And it served kind of as the Erzatz um, Cathedral for English Catholicism, because as you know, Catholicism was illegal in England uh, until late, late 18th century. Um, Scotland, there's a clandestine church for you up there on top, 1755. Soon as there's a legal change, they start building churches that actually look like churches. Up until that time, they could not. There were even, in some parts of Europe, quasi-clandestine synagogues. This was one that was relatively recently discovered in Alsace. Again, up in the attic of someone's house. As for shared churches, well, um, there were ones like this one in um, Switzerland. There were several hundred of them by the 18th century in, um, well, the Rhineland, principally, in Germany. And as I, you know, just to, to, to conclude, I mean, I'm not saying that these are the only two forms of toleration in this time and place I'm talking about. There were others. This is, for instance, a synagogue uh, in Venice. It is one part of an arrangement for the accommodation of a religious group that people reviled, unlike either the quasi-clandestine church or the, or the shared church. It was, of course, the ghetto. Now, unlike popular mythology, ghettos are not a medieval phenomenon. Ghettos came into being in the period that we've been talking about in the 16th century, in fact, to accommodate Jews, often in cities like Venice, where they had not been allowed to live at all previously. I'm not going to talk about that or other forms of accommodation and toleration. Jews enough 
for one day. Thank you. That, thanks very much, Ben, for that. That was uh, fascinating. I guess you say a little bit more about the ways in which your cases and indeed the, the sort of project that you outlined at the start, and it is the subject of the book, um, fits and interacts with the things that we're talking about in the, the, these, these couple of days. So, I mean, as I understood it, and please, um, I'm sure I haven't got this quite right, um, the idea is that, that there's a perception, an idea, an understanding of the way in which tolerance has grown up, and there's this, uh, this evolutionary story. And I think the, the term that you use in the book is, is that it's, a, it's actually a myth that tolerance has evolved in this way. And the idea, is, again, as I understand it, is that there's this transition from a sort of primitive views of religion, lots of conflict, lots of sort of tribalism and that sort of stuff, and then as our society grew up and became more enlightened, that this sort of tolerance spread and there was a sort of uniform, and there's this sort of general progression. Right? Um, and that your, that your examples and the other examples that you give are designed to undermine that and to show that myth as a myth. Um, and I guess, so my question is, how does this myth, how does the destruction of this myth um, help us to understand and think about the sort of contemporary context of religion and religious conflict. And now one way that we might think about it is extending the myth and saying, well, look, the natural progression from the sort of primitive tribal views of religion through a sort of more tolerant, enlightened view is actually to the, the, the dissolution of religion. So that the, the natural track that this evolution will take in society will be that people will, as it were, will see that religion will collapse and then that will be the end of that. Um, so that's the sort of first, the sort of first question that sort of thing links in with the themes that we're talking about here. The other is the other point again on this this general theme is the way in which your thesis, that is that it, that this evolution is a myth, can be challenged. And one of the things that you said at the start was that your interest is very much in the behavioural history, history, rather than the history of ideas. And I wonder whether whether your responses to what you've said in your claims have come from the sort of history of ideas people and have undermined or attempted to undermine your claim based in the behavioural stuff. Um, well, th thank you, Mark, for those thoughtful comments. I mean, I do think, um, as you perhaps are aware, that um, behind the mythical schema um, of the evolutionary um, progress and, uh, um, and success of tolerance is another uh, historical schema, namely secularization, I think, really, that it's often presumed that the Enlightenment was either irreligious or at least less religious than uh, those who professed a uh, Christianity or other form of piety in that era were either not sincere or were um, somehow shallow in their religiosity. And what has happened, I would say, is that people looking at the European, in which I include the British context, have come to define religion per se by its most intolerant form and, and uh, the period in which it was um, acted most intolerantly. The um, confessional piety of the late 16th and 17th centuries has somehow 
become the benchmark. And so anybody who has a form of Christian piety which is different, um, which is not as dogmatic, for example, somehow aren't as good Christians. And their religiosity is not just qualitatively different, it is quantitatively less. I think this is doing a horrible uh, injustice to people both today and, and in the past. So, in a way, I mean, what I'm trying to articulate in a historical way as a historian is a kind of news which I think is good, not everybody would necessarily, but that one can be religious and even intolerant and not kill one another. You can have communities where groups are fundamentally in ideological conflict with one another, revile one another's basic tenets, and nevertheless, they get along in the day-to-day -day well enough. And, you know, I mean, as an individual rather than a historian, I might say, well, I'd rather live where and when we are today, but still, that's better than, you know, what often gets posed as the sole alternative. Um, so so that's, that's one point I, I would make, that, that the history of tolerance is not dependent on secularization. It is not dependent on reason superseding faith. Um, the second point that you raised regarded the, the history of ideas and really what you're pointing to is kind of uh, the next frontier for um, studies in this area. I mean, the history of ideas was almost the only way the history of toleration was studied literally for you know, not just decades, but you know, since the 19th century. That and political history, and often the two were fused in various ways. The history of the rise of tolerance was that of champions, uh, intellectual champions of toleration, articulating ideas that were ahead of their time, right? And uh, triumphing or not against their backwards, quote unquote, uh, benighted opponents. Um, it's, it has all the kind of symbolic dimensions of a story with you know, mythical figures um, and villains and so forth. Um, but um, that's not how the history of ideas or uh, how ideas and society have to be related to one another. The problem, in addition to the kind of ideological schema underlying it, was also that ideas were taken out of any uh, social or cultural context. The fact that ideas, robust philosophies even, of toleration were articulated and indeed adopted by very significantly large segments of the educated elites of Europe in the 18th century was simply equated with the rise of toleration per se, um, ignoring actually what was happening on the ground and what was in the minds of the vast majority of people at the time. The ideas of a limited elite was taken as the history of civilization. And all historical work done for more than half a century now repudiates that elitist approach. However, once you've you know, binned that, how then do you re-relate the ideas and the, um, and the practices? Because I certainly am not proposing that there's no connection and that the one and the other aren't interwoven. But they seem to be interwoven in ways that nobody's really looked at. 
and and you know there are still um, historians and and major historical works which are still promoting this the old history of ideas um, uh, agenda, um, and so we haven't turned that corner yet actually, but it would have to be something more relating culture and society.